Well, please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Uh, Romans 14. As we approach this text, um, let me just pray for us as we start. Father, we um, are forever thankful to be your children and forever thankful to be in need of the Spirit of God in us and for us to enjoy our unity with you through him as he would teach us and not only teach us, but um, give us the heart of Christ. So we ask that you be with us, be with me as I teach, be with all of us as we listen, Lord, please um, uh, align our hearts rightly underneath you. Um, Lord, if we're here out of duty, help us with that. Um, if we're obstinate towards you, Father, I pray that you break through our obstinance with a vision of your goodness and your sweetness. Um, Father, if we are here shopping for something to make us maybe feel better or solve a problem, give us grace to back that up and to come to the one who is absolutely loving and wise and good and give us hearts to really value what you have to say and then find our help that we need in our time of trouble. So please be with all of our hearts and be with me as I speak this morning. Be with our teachers downstairs, the kids as they listen. Um, Jesus, please conform us into the image of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So in our text, we are in Romans 14. Um, our title of our text today is Growing Together in Faith. In Romans, uh, so far where we've kind of gotten to this, this place, um, Romans, a lot of chapters, verse, chapters 1 to 11, um, are namely the undergirdings or the grand economy of things. It is the most in-depth, rich, robust writing ever given in all the universe as to how things work and who God is and who we are and the connection between. Uh, it is amazingly good, helpful, some incredibly deep stuff through there, right? Chapter 12, it turns the corner and goes, okay, now since all that's happened, let's talk about the practicals of what that means to live out. And if all this mercy has been poured out, what does it shape us? Chapter 12 talks about how it shapes us with each other in the church. First half, second half is how it shapes us as we deal with the world that doesn't like Jesus and therefore doesn't like us and attacks us. And so how we respond to that. Very, very pertinent and will be more pertinent tomorrow than it is today for us. That's the trajectory of things. Then we get to 13. He goes, well, then if you've received this mercy, how does it relate to you living on an earthly globe that has government, which is God's idea. So how do you handle that? Especially since government will always be run by very imperfect people, often very wicked people. How do we handle that? Gets to the end of 13 and really comes to a, a head of the message saying, like, run away from sin. Dear Christians, if you are under the mercy of God, run away from sin. Flee from it. Turns the corner to 14. And in 14, he starts talking about how we deal and welcome one another. Right? We welcome all Christians, verses 1 to 4, we welcome all Christians not to be their fixer or to be contentious with them, um, which is really a true temptation for us the more we know about Scripture, the more biblically informed we are, the more when we see someone coming in young or maybe from a Christian culture that isn't so biblically studying or informed, it can be tempting to want to be the fixer or like, oh, come on in, we'll, we'll, we'll polish you up, right? Just come on to the door. But that's not what he's called us to do. He's called us to really welcome them and cherish them because God himself has welcomed them and welcomed you. We have to allow space for immaturity and undeveloped biblical thought that isn't clearly stated in the New Testament as sin. So we have to allow space for that because God is always growing his people. He saves people out of darkness and then he grows them from baby Christians to strong Christians. And they're not loathsome or embarrassing when they're a baby Christian, when they don't know all the right answers or when they have things that are a little bit confused or in development. 
as long as it's not sin, we make space for that in the church, and we don't mock people in their position because we're just simply saved people ourselves, right, that God brought out of darkness in a marvelous light. And why, why do we allow space? Because we as Christians are people who have fled to him, fled to him. It's our, kind of our gospel identity. That song we sang, that last one there, right? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul yearns for you. That's a design issue. Your soul is designed to yearn for the Lord. And to some level of, of, of experience in your life, you will have tasted pieces of that. You may not have tasted strongly of that. You're like, oh my gosh, yes. I can remember right now or yesterday when my soul just longed to be with Jesus. You may be at a very, very spots of your experience of having those moments, but your heart is designed that way. Your heart is designed to be with Jesus. That is where you find satisfaction. It's reflected in our text this past week when it said, if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. That's, that's the definition of what it means to be a saved person. Uh, Isaac and I were talking this, this week about some conversations that we were having with people about the gospel. There's a question like, what does it mean to be saved? It means to belong to God to be purchased with the cross of Jesus, and now the new is we belong to him. Whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we belong to him. Um, and one of the things that kills us is when we treat Jesus as a condiment in our life. Um, RMC this week was talking about mission. And mission is so impossible and inconvenient when Jesus and mission is a condiment of our life, a little add-on, right? It's just so frustrating. It's almost impossible. But that's the reason is, is because Jesus has never been designed to be an accoutrement or a condiment to your life. Jesus is the essence of your life. Whether you live or you die, we are the Lord's. So it starts out in this gospel undergirding, right? And so he's saying, don't, because whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's, don't shun people from coming in who believe in Jesus. Welcome them. Welcome them because we all belong to the Lord. And, he's, and he says, he uses the word judgment a lot. So he gets to our text today, which is in verse 13. And he goes, so don't judge them. Don't despise them because they're young. And don't judge them because they have a different spot of conviction about something not specified in Scripture. So judge, judge, judge. He goes, but speaking of judge, look in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. Okay, so here's secret sauce behind it. That word decide is actually the word judgment. So he goes, speaking of judgment, verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather judge this. Never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. It's, um, it's, it's really kind of a, it's like a judo move. Right? Like, I don't want you to judge. Oh, actually, you can't judge one thing. Yourself. Come to clear thought on this one thing. Do not get in their way. Our first piece today is we cannot impede each other. We cannot impede each other. How do we do that? Well, there's a number of ways. In verse 15, we grieve them. Right? Verse 15 says we don't want to be careful because if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll bring grief to them. Verse says this, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Another way that we see this impeding a brother is in verse 20 to 21. Make them stumble by eating something in which they are going against what they believe God's to be God's desire. Okay, here's a little, little context here because we covered this two weeks ago. What's at stake is this. You're in the church. You're in Rome. 
You lost half your church. All the Jewish people got booted out a couple of years ago. Uh, you never had an apostle there. You've heard this message, this Jewish or originated gospel has come to town, and you're trying to sort through, okay, I know it comes from Judaism, but Christ is new, and like what sticks and what goes and those kind of things. It's a big question there. Well, one of the hard challenges of living in the, in, the, in the Roman towns at that time is if you wanted a good meat supply, you usually had to go to a temple for that. Um, you didn't just necessarily go to Bob's or Demetrius's butcher shop. You'd go to a temple where there'd be a, a meat shop on the side of a temple where they would slaughter animals and they would provide the meat. It'd be there on the edge. And Paul has taught us elsewhere that that meat is okay. What they did and what they chanted over the meat didn't actually stain the meat or give it some like spiritual trichinosis or something like that. It's the, the meat's okay. But there was this ceremony going over the meat. That meat was dedicated to somebody, and there's a way you eat that in dedicating it to the Lord. Um, we take amazing um, gluten-free bread, and we do the opposite to that every other week in the back in communion, right? We take very regular gluten-free bread, microwave so it sticks together because there's no gluten in it. And... Um, <laughs> And then we take that in honor of Jesus. Now, nothing happens to the bread. He doesn't become thigh, nothing like that. It's just representative, right? But that bread is taken in honor in, in the name of something, taken in the honor in the name of Jesus. There's a way that you would eat food offered to idols, that you would take that piece of meat in honor of Zeus or in honor of Hermes, right? So you would do that. So the meat itself is not unclean. But there is this great question, as people come out of paganism in this culture, there is this great idea of like, what can I eat, what can I not eat? Because eating has been so integral to the part of their former worship life. So it's a hot topic. What do you eat, what do you not eat? What can I drink, what can I not drink? It was a very hot topic. So he says here in verse 20 and 21, here's how they might hurt them. Do not, verse 20, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble in what he eats. So grieved in 15, destroy in 20, stumble in verse 20. In verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So what we're talking about here is not uh, something that simply makes another Christian sad, but it brings another Christian to the point where it causes them to be tempted to go against something that is not settled in their conscience. So that's, that's the point of grieve, that's the point of destroying, that's the point of stumbling. The word stumble here is used in the last chapter is about Jesus being the stumbling stone, right? So don't get in the way the progress of faith in their life because they have fled to Jesus. Now what you do when you flee is you leave things behind. There's great pictures of this in the Bible. Think of Joseph, right? Old Potiphar's scandalous wife. Um, who's like coming after him, he flees, right? And everyone knows what's left in her hand, you know, his coat, because he fled, you know, with the bandit, right? You think of uh, the Passover meal, like when they, when they come out, you celebrate the Passover meal, there's the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is, is supposed to be this remembering of the fact, like, man, we fled out of there. Like, we just left everything behind, and we fled out of there. So we flee to Jesus, and that's part of authentic, genuine repentance, how do, how do we know if a person is actually the Lord's versus they just kind of chanted that kind of evangelical incantation about Jesus coming to my heart or say something or like this really high emotional moment at the end of the Bible conference or at that summer camp? Like, have they fled? Because they, they've asked God, 
I want to belong to you. I was not belonging to you. I belonged to the dark one. I was darkness, and I want to belong to you. I want out of darkness into marvelous light. I want to be out of sin into righteousness. So I want that new position. Please give it to me as Jesus. Then what do they do? Do they just flop back in and just lounge around and soak in some, some sin again, or do they flee from it and flee to Christ? When as we flee to Christ, as we repent out of darkness into marvelous light, we often... Um, do it with bags unpacked. When the Spirit of God hits you and you hear about the gospel of Jesus and he brings you to conviction over not only the troubles you're in, but the trouble you are as darkness, as sin against the Lord, when the Spirit of God brings that upon our hearts, he brings us to repent, to flee from the devil, to run away from him, to repent. And as you do that, you very well may likely find that you left a couple things behind that you didn't necessarily need to leave behind. But that day you need to leave it behind because you needed to roll. You needed to get out of there. And so maybe technically some of those things were still allowable. But for you, not that day. Your day was to flee and run. And it is a 100% like hard, like dumb thing for us as Christians to sit here some six months to 60 years in our Christian game and go, oh, well, why... Why'd you leave that behind? Like, dude, bring them in. Bandage them. Love them. Um, listen to their heart. Listen to why they left it behind. Yeah, maybe you know something about it. Maybe you know something that you read Paul. They haven't read it quite yet. Love them. Care for them. Rejoice that their heart is following wholeheartedly Jesus as they understand him. Do not get in their way. So it doesn't mean we don't talk about these things with each other as worship. And it doesn't mean that we walk on eggshells right, all the time in order to not possibly offend any unseen or unknown brother we ever may encounter. So we never eat this, and we never drink this, and we never do this, and we never do that, and we celebrate all the Christian festivals, Lent and Easter and Christmas and everything between. It's not that means we walk in eggshells and do all the possibilities, but there are very real people in front of us that God has given. It means we don't coax them. We don't mock them. We don't callously carry on with other things that we may believe are free in their presence in a way that causes them to stumble. Why? Because verse 15 describes it as, that's destroying them. It's destroying them. If God has just birthed this new conscience to come before him and to be aligned with him and say, okay, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And then we, the older brothers and sisters, come along and we tell them, like, basically, don't be that serious about that. Okay, I'm, I literally remember conversations I had as a younger believer in college. I go to this place called the Master's College and I just feel, man, the Lord is just like pu pushing on me, like, follow me, follow me, follow me. Don't throw out exceptions. Follow me. Will you follow me? And so I'm in this battle, right? And I'm, I'm yielded to him. But I feel like every day he's showing me new things. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Then I've got roommates and friends that is, they say, they say I want to follow him. They've said that. I'm a Christian. I want to follow him. But then when I want to talk to them about these things and follow them, they're like, Burns, you're just too serious. You're just too serious. That's not helpful. You don't get too serious for Jesus. You get accurate about Jesus. You don't get too serious for Jesus. And um, I started engaging this whole culture of you, you, that's too serious. And you just can't be too serious for Jesus. What does it mean to be Jesus? It means to belong to him. It means to follow him with the whole heart. He is really, literally the Lord of your life. He's your God. He's not your advisor. He's not your buddy. He's not a general standard that you own up to. Like, he is God. So there's no such thing as too serious. And when we 
carelessly bring our freedoms in front of people and tell them to cool their jets, call them to cool their love and cool, cool their devotion and their commitment to Jesus, um, you are destroying them. You are destroying them. And you're usually doing it to make you not feel so convicted and inconvenienced because the heat of their passion is making yours feel uncomfortable. I'm just saying this, at least that's the way I feel, just to be honest with you. I've had so many times where I encounter a young Christian and I'm like moved by their passion. I'm like, man, that's some hot passion there. And of course, it's got some phrase on the outside. It's really easy for me to grab on the phrase to excuse the coolness of my heart in comparison with the hotness of their heart. Don't ever, ever, ever put water in the passion of someone's heart that God has put there under the name of being the wiser, older brother, but instead being the destroying one. So is to destroy them. We cannot impede each other. Every Christian we know is in the race of faith, and we must be extremely careful that we do not impede others in their attempts to discern what is pleasing to God in the issues of conscience. Our second piece is this, verse 14. So not only must we, we cannot impede each other, but number two, we must have a pure conscience ourselves. All must have it. We must all must have a pure conscience. Verse 14, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. All right, so if you're thinking, oh, sweet, everything's clean, um, you might notice there are 14 chapters before this portion, right? right? And there's a bunch of things that God says, nope. You have no part of me if you're a part of these things. So there's a whole bunch of nope precedes this, okay? But he's talking about earthly elements, earthly elements, food, drink, celebrations, um, for a lot of them, it might be thinking like Jewish celebrations, like the Feast of Tabernacles, those kind of things. Are they good or are they bad? Those kind of things. Um, the Lord's Day. We still have this one raging on today. There's people that really believe that there is a day of the Lord, you should always enjoy it, and it should be on Sunday. Or there is a day of the Lord, you should always enjoy it, it's on Saturday. And probably next year, there'll be someone who thinks it's Wednesday, right? So there's always these things. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. The term unclean here um, literally is the word common. Common. And it, it kind of helps. Uh, okay, maybe maybe deeper into the pool. Maybe that deep. But, um, so we have this word in the New Testament and Old Testament called holy, right? And they're two different words, Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. But particularly in the New Testament, we have holy. Um, comes this word called hagios. And we've got a lot of words that built off that. Hallowed be your name. Oh, that's holy be your name. And um, saints, that's holy ones, literally. And that's every last one of you. If you came to know Jesus two seconds ago because you heard about the message, you are a saint. You are a holy one by God's definition. There's a bunch of people on the earth here that different definitions. There's just a matter. They don't know holiness. God, the holy one, says you are holy. Okay? So saints, holy ones. Holy means set apart from, distinct from, more excellent than. The opposite of holy in the New Testament is common. It's the, it's the same word we get fellowship with, koinonia, right? So, so it's, it's the base of that. So common versus set apart and excellent. And they can both be good in their context. When it's fellowship, we are all together. We're not set apart. It's not like, you know, Alex over there. She is set apart from the rest of us. Oh, no, no, she's very common amongst us. Why? Well, she's a sister and brothers with us, right? So they're common. But what he's talking about here is he says these foods, there's nothing here that isn't, that is too common for God. So none of these things here that aren't holy, 
Everything is holy to the Lord, to the believer. Everything is holy. It, but it is defiled if, it means it's not holy, it is just not God's, if the person believes it is. So if a Christian has this, I'm going to pick uh, something here. Uh, they think that, oh, I didn't think about this ahead of time. Um, they're going to think that, um, text, eating meat, it's not right. If they honestly think, now they're wrong, because actually just, we just read that, eating meat's okay. They're wrong about it. But if in their heart they believe that it actually is still wrong because some extrapolations of New Testament and over, some great theory they had that week, if in their heart they are not convinced that that is honoring to the Lord, then for them to eat that, that is sin for them. Because they're not following the Lord as defined by himself in Scripture. So there's all these things that he defines by himself in Scripture. Those things are clear with to bring him out. But he says there are things on the edge of Scripture that people will misunderstand. And when they misunderstand him, and they're not overt sin, they misunderstand him, they call those good things sin. To them, it very much is sin for them to do it at that point in time. So we have to have a pure conscience. Look at verse 22, 23. All done without faith, that is good, really is unholy sin. It says it again, 22. The faith that you have, keep that between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself or what he approves. So like, happy are you if you don't go around bringing condemnation on yourself by approving what you shouldn't approve, doing what you shouldn't. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So we as believers are people of faith. At the beginning of this book of Romans, it says we are here to bring about the obedience of faith. We are people who actively engage a relationship in the God of heaven. And we do everything in word, in deed, in eating, in food. We do all things to the glory of God, all out of faith. Because whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. And if we cannot do those items out of faith, knowing that it pleases him, then we don't do them. We don't do them. Now, reasons we may not have faith to do things. Okay, so just prepare yourself for this one. Reasons we may not have a faith to engage in something. Number one, a person really struggles with addiction or mastery of something over them. And God clearly tells us elsewhere to run from that temptation. So you have a brother... Uh, let's just say beer. And you're addicted to beer, you're addicted to alcohol, and it's mastery over your life. Uh, you know it. You know that it's something you can't play with. God tells you to flee it if you're addicted to it. I would tell you that God tells you here that it is not biblically unholy. Beer is not biblically unholy. But if it is a master for you, he calls you to flee it. And so if you are fighting mastery and temptation in your life for you to engage in that is sin. And for me to be callous to your cause of that, whatever it is, if it's alcohol, if it's tobacco, if it's food, if it's whatever it is for me to be callous to you, that's sin for me to get in your way as you try to flee temptation and pass something that has mastery over you. So number one, we may not have the faith to engage in something, number one, if we're fighting against addiction or mastery. Number two, maybe a person is not deep in their biblical understanding and they needlessly write something off. That happens. Okay, they just might just be really kind of fresh to the text and the argument. Some of these things can kind of be hard to understand, especially when you're, when you're really trying to think, you're trying to be like 
consistent in your thoughts, systematic. You're not just stacking up like Lego Bible verses, right? You're trying to bring systems to it together, right? So we have these conversations in here of like, okay, so if God says this and God says this, is it a rightful connection between the two thoughts that we can say this and therefore we should do that, right? Those, those inferences and those connections can be tricky sometimes. And we can get that wrong or get it right. Number three, something is just too connected to our former worship. Uh, and so we've ha- I've had that conversation here for some of us. Trappings from your old former rebellion, certain language, words that are just too much part of the old, certain dress, maybe y- your hair or your jewelry, maybe certain entertainment, maybe, maybe going places, um, maybe even your name. Um, their trappings are just too woven into your old life of worship. And you can't touch it without kind of having a flashback. You know those movies where you put your hand on something, you have a flashback to your mind? Like there's certain things in our lives that have been so integral to our former lives of rebellion that we can't touch it. And uh, we have discussions about that here. And that's okay. Brother, sister, that's okay. If you have those things in your life, maybe they don't even have mastery over you, but they're an instant flashback to the past. It's okay to say no to that. It's okay for me to never do that thing in front of you because I want to love you in that. And fourth, we think of an extrapolation of the Old Testament or Scripture, a must or a must not, like celebrating Lent, Christmas, specific application points. So those are all different ways that we can find ourselves maybe not being able to participate something in faith. If you cannot do it in faith, don't do it. If you have this, this hankering in your heart that maybe that's wrong, follow Jesus and don't do it. Have some conversations with us, but until you have the conversations and you feel convicted in your heart, don't do it. We want you to follow Jesus. We're more interested in you following Jesus than you nailing every single possible thing right. So in these areas of question, not these areas of, of clear prohibited sin, but these areas of, of not so clear areas, talk to us, but until then, until your heart is full of faith that you can do that item as worship to the Lord, don't touch it. Because anything not done in faith is sin. Every believer must follow Christ from the heart, and therefore, if they are unsure if God approves on anything, they must avoid that thing. Anything done without faith is sin. And finally, the third piece is this. The Father's call. Why is it so big? The Father's call is to build up one another. Look at verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And that's a really big deal. Why is that a big deal? You're no longer walking in love. Because that is the second commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus comes in with a, with a new one saying, I got a new commandment, right? Love one another. So now we got first one, love God. Second, love is people. Third, love is world. And this is a direct failing of, of, of commandment number two. The second thing Jesus calls us to, which is also a failing of number one. So for us not to walk in love is a fundamental failure. This is not like a, ah, whoopsie. It's not a little spiritual slip that we mishandle younger people in the church or new believers, it's big things. You're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And he brings it back to this, this picture of like, why is it such a big deal? It's because Jesus deeply, deeply loves that person. He loved that person so much that he died for that person. I mean, it's very specific wording there. Do you see that? Like, it's not just, just remember Jesus died for us. He goes, do not do not destroy the one for whom Jesus died. And this is where this gospel stuff is deep. 
God just didn't love all those people. He loved you, child of God. He loved you. He died for specific you, for Nathan Barnes, died for him, for Claire, died for her, for you, not just generically, but for you, if you are in Christ Jesus. It's a bold statement of love. And what God is doing is he's not necessarily bringing on us here at this moment to realize how much he loves us, and we can do that. But here he's bringing it to help us understand that person sitting next to you that knows Jesus, God deeply loves him. Jesus loves him so much that he went and got butchered for that person. Um, Take very, very seriously the value of the soul sitting next to you, the souls in your MCs, the kids that are downstairs. Those souls are precious souls. They're precious to God. And if you like God, and that's what Christians do, it's going to be precious to us. Our call is to love, and this violates it. Verse 16, our good must not be seen as evil. Do not let do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So if you know you're sitting next to your sister, and your sister's kind of new, and she doesn't understand that, that God really allows this, um, but you do. So your sister, she goes, I think beer is from the devil, okay? Um, I have old believers in my life that believe that beer is from the devil, okay? I, 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 I'm kind of challenged sometimes because they've been reading the scriptures longer than me, but they still think that, right? But it's okay. My friends believe that beer is from the devil, um, and I don't, because I've read it, God tells me, don't let my good action, which would be, in this case, for some people to drink beer to the glory of God, do not let that good thing be an evil thing. Don't let it be spoken of as evil. The word here is blasphemed. Like, what you're doing, because what you're doing is good in worship, don't do it in a way that it actually becomes known as an instrument of evil, where you destroy that that, bro- that brother or that sister with that broken conscience or that person who struggled with mastery or that person who is just trying to follow the Lord and they're, they're off. So number one, don't, uh, your, good must not be, your good must not become seen as evil. Then in verse 17, the real engagements of our kingdom call are righteousness, peace, joy, the spirit. Look at 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So classic, classic case of I'm just going to call us for a second, God's brats, right? God comes to us in darkness. We're all chumps and punks and dead. And he comes to us out of mercy and love and lavishes us with forgiveness and, and forever and eternity. And then he just starts pouring out all these gifts and all this goodness. And we are like the most, we just struggle with being the most ungrateful, assumptive group of kids all the time. And he still loves us. He's so patient. And he gives us things. He gives us all these good things to enjoy. He gives us marriage, and he gives us food and drink and all these kind of things. And we're like, oh, really? I get that too? And so then they become my things. And they get, I, I'm really into the gift and not so much into the giver. I really love the gift. These are my gifts. This is my gift. This is my thingy, right? And he tells us, listen, the kingdom of heaven is not your thingy. The kingdom of heaven is not your gifts. The kingdom of heaven is the giver. The kingdom of heaven is not about eating and not about drinking, but it's about righteousness, from him and through him and to us. It's about peace and joy the Holy Spirit. What marks us is we are people that look past all the amazing gifts God gives to the giver. We look to his heart, and therefore we look back to the people through him. And what characterizes us is not all of us doing what we can, all that we can do. What characterizes us is people loving one another, full of righteousness and peace and joy towards one another. Verse 18 tells us this is pleasing to the one that it really matters to. Verse 18 Whoever, there, 
uh, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. So remember the problem God us into this is they were unapproving of other men? He goes, no, 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 no. Here's the real deal. You do this way. You think in kingdom ways and look past the thingies to the giver of these things. And this, when you look to God and enter into people through worship, this is approved to God. And it blesses people. It's acceptable to God because he's the one that matters. That's one of the huge arguments that goes through all chapter 14 is like, we belong to God. They belong to God. Quit acting like they belong to you. They belong to him. It's about him and his approval, not our approval. This life here is acceptable to God. And by the way, it is approved by men. When you live in righteousness and peace and joy with people, it's a blessing to people. When you've got a person that's judging you, it's not a blessing to you. Verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The last word there, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. The word there is home building. Home building. Because that's the way God, we don't think of it that way, but that's what God's family is. It is his home. We are his, the word is oikos. We are his household. And he's building up his household. And the people sitting next to you and the people in fellowship and all the Christians God brings in your life, they are part of God's household. And so what does God calls us to do? He calls us to love and to house build them. Not to critique them, not to mock them, not to be indifferent of them because they are some small stone in the house in your opinion, not a giant capstone like you, whatever we might think, but to house build, to take those souls because when we look past our stuff to the king, the king goes, all right, I've got these people I love and I died for them. Now I'm assigning you to them build them up. And so we sit here in Cross City Church or whatever church you're part of and you're surrounded by 5, 10, 100 people that are precious in the sight of the Lord and he's pushed you right there in his life. And what does he want out of you for them? He wants you to really love them. And to what end? He wants you the power of the Spirit to build them up. Uh, it was sure means some nice words like, hey, you look great today. Hey, thanks for doing that. You mowed that lawn really great. Great conversation. Thanks for serving. But, but way more than just our words, like really help them. Help them in their understanding of Christ. Help them in their faith in Christ. Help them through their, their hurt and their troubles to really embrace them. Help them with their kids. Them help you with yours to really house build them up. God's call for our focus is not on what we are privileged to in this life, but rather our Father and His beloved family's welfare and building up. If we keep it clear, then our pathway in front of us is rather simple and clear. How do I handle a brother or sister? Seek the Spirit's leading on how to love and build them up in authentically following Christ. They must follow Jesus. They must follow Jesus. Help them follow Jesus. I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads, and uh, I'm going to give you three things to pray through. So I'm just going to read off a prayer. You take that and just talk to the Lord about that topic for the next 30 seconds. Father, please reveal to me if there are any people in my life where I'm sinning by participating in something that I'm convinced is, uh, please show me if there's any way where I'm sinning and participating in something I'm not convinced is right before you. Am I not living in faith in anything?
Father. Um, I'm, I'm seeing, <clears throat> am I seeing and embracing the growth of brothers and sisters as I ought? Please help me. Finally, Father, please move my heart to the beauty of your deep and self-sacrificing love you have for your children. Help me see it and rejoice in it. It's beautiful. Father, hallow your name and let your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.